From KIOS in Omaha and Exarban Creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. On today's show, I have a conversation with writer Sally J. Walker. Walker is a writer of novels, screenplays, and a new textbook called Learn Screenwriting. Our knowledge is not for us, it's for the world. When you, when you learn anything, we have a duty to pass it on to other people. I don't uh, hoard anything, including my time, which my husband grabs my face and goes, learn to say it, no. <laughs> Walker discusses the necessity of pragmatism in a life as a writer and what techniques she's learned from decades of craft that can be applied to anyone looking to enter the field. After a break, stick around for my conversation with Sally J. Walker right here on Riverside Chats. Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers. The coronavirus pandemic is changing everything. How we work, how we interact, how we move around or don't, and how we deal with being caught up in that change, which is happening really fast. So to help you process it all, we have started a new podcast, a way for you to get the latest news and science on the pandemic. Because we think being informed is the best way to get through this thing. So every weekday, you will hear conversations and stories from NPR journalists who are covering the virus, the public health fight against it, and how the world is coping. In about 10 minutes, NPR will give you what you need to know about this fast-moving story. We're calling it Coronavirus Daily. You can find new episodes right here every weekday afternoon. Hello? Want to be a munchie boy? Listen to Omaha's new goofy food podcast, The Munchie Boys. Every week, we get food from a different local restaurant. Let's go. We munch. Yes, there is munch. And talk about the experience. What we got. Where did we go? We're still there. Two boxes of food. In lighthearted banter. I just jammed the rest of the Mediterranean in my mouth. Meatball-based items. In a way that is both zany. This is going to be crazy. We might end up throwing up. And fun. My hands are burning. Hell yeah. Every episode features an exclusive song. do 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 Where we sing about our weekly adventures and feature a different analog synth. It's a synth model. Play the track now. Now, yeah, we yeah, yeah. It sounds like haha, bro. Check out Munchie Boys it's on Spotify, YouTube, streaming or streaming, and most other digital outlets. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I have a conversation with Sally J. Walker, author of novels such as Desert Time several screenplays, and the new book exploring what she's learned from decades of the craft, Learn Screenwriting. In addition to her writing itself, Walker established the Nebraska Writers' Workshop and had an active role in the Nebraska Film Association. Learn Screenwriting came out last year and is available wherever you get books. Here is my conversation with its author, Sally J. Walker. You are very active as far as in what Omaha's, what's going on in Omaha, sort of like with screenwriting, you write books. You've written, what, textbooks as well? Two textbooks on screenwriting, and then I will have four more textbooks coming out on just general fiction. Four more. Yes, that's a lot of textbooks. So, I mean, would you would you describe yourself as prolific? Probably. <laughs> I, I've been highly disciplined uh, every my entire life, basically. Where does that come from? I have no idea. Um, although I've always been aware of, even when I was was a child, that 
there's a lot to do in the world, and life is very finite, so let's get busy with it. What, I mean, that's, that's a very mature worldview. So, I mean, what, at what age would you say that that sort of crystallized for you? When I was 12. Did something happen when you were 12? No, we were living on the farm, and um, so I had my farm chores and, and that sort of life. Uh, that was in Villisca, Iowa. And um, I was a prolific reader, and when my dad would take me uh, with him into town on Saturday, he'd just drop me off at the library, and I checked out the maximum number of books I could check out, and I just, I read constantly, and one of the books that I read was Little Women, and I identified with Joe in that um, but I also uh, checked out books that had to do with nursing, uh, Cherry Ames series, and uh, read those, and I so I could envision myself as as being a nurse. So, um, nurse, writer, horse owner—that was what I set my heart on. So you were you had like a practical dream, and then the like you know oh the dream of just I'll make it as a writer as well. So you kind of like had two visions for yourself. I was always very aware that writing is a crapshoot. Yeah. And um, so I wanted to be a nurse as well. So that's the pragmatic Mm -hmm. side. And when I started working on a degree in creative writing at UNO, I entered it with pragmatic expectations because I'd already been studying writing for a long time. I was almost 30 when I started my degree. And so writing program is under fine arts. None of the fine arts disciplines teaches people how to make a living at their art. And uh, that really frustrated me. So I'm a firm believer in you get out of your education what you put into it. So I set about at the same time learning how to apply all of this knowledge to making a living. So um, when I got out, when I graduated in 1985, then I established the Nebraska Writers Workshop for the purpose of working with people who wanted to take their art and make a living from it. And so that's it's been going for 35 years at the Ralston Library and very successfully. That's yeah. I mean, there's so many impressive things. Uh, I want to take a step back before we get into all that, though. So, I mean, you grew up in a small town in Iowa or a farm in Iowa. Oh, my dad. We lived in several different farms. I was born in Exira, Iowa. Okay. And um, we had lived on the family farm there, and then my dad worked on uh, farms in Adair and in Casey, and uh, then um, in Faliska, and for. F- four and a half years when we first came off the farm uh, in the early 50s my dad worked as a caretaker at peony park oh wow okay and so when i started school so i was in uh i started first grade um through fourth grade there at um the school underwood school which was just across the bridge and now has moved to a different location from Peony Park and uh, so lived there for four absolutely wonderful years for a child because all 
um, summer long, we swam from 8 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night, and my hair would be green from the chlorine. Um, and I wrote my first uh, short story there when I was in the first grade, and I still have it. <laughs> and it's all the, the block printing, and some of the, the dialogue has quotation marks and some doesn't. And, and I take it as an audiovisual aid when I give presentations to schools, talking about, you know, you can discover in your childhood what you want to do. So I wrote that short story in the first grade. I wrote my first stage play in the third grade. And then we left Peony Park, and my dad went back working on the farm. And I wrote my first melodramatic novella, a Western, when I was uh, in the sixth grade. And then when my dad again left the farm, we came back to Omaha and lived in Ralston. Um, and then I uh, um, moved to housing that was in La Vista, and I graduated from high school in Papillion. But when I was 16, I wrote my first teleplay with the help of a Paramount writer who corresponded with me. Well, there's, that's a lot. So, I mean, how did you get the discipline to write things? Was it just because it was fun for you? Or, I mean, how did you even get to that point where you decide, you know what, I can do that? I have no idea. <laughs> when I, I had vivid, vivid dreams and a vivid imagination. And um, I just started writing them down. Um, I did not believe that I could be a poet until uh, at UNO you had to take two semesters of poetry. And so I uh, got to study under the fabulous Art Homer, who has since retired. And um, the first thing that I published was in poetry. Really? Yeah. What were the poems that made you believe you could either do that or sort of fall in love with the medium? You know, uh, each each discipline has its own appeal, its own magic. And poetry is saying the most with the least number of words. Mm -hmm. It's about intensity. And so that teaches you how to control words and language to say specifically what you want to say. Short stories teaches you the structure of beginning, middle, and ending, and um, how to compactly tell one incident out of a character's life. Then novels teach you how to research and develop complex stories with multiple levels and multiple characters. And then, to me, the epitome of writing is screenwriting. Because in screenwriting, you have to use all of that. But you have to write to motivate all those other collaborators who participate in creating a film. And it starts with the writer. Now, and uh, I've learned from the phenomenal Lou Hunter, who was the head of the film department at UCLA, who lives here in Nebraska now. He's been my mentor since 1997. And Lou lectures that writers are at the bottom of the fish tank in Hollywood. And everybody else feels that the film 
is their responsibility. And yes, the writer starts the process, but they don't care. They only care about their responsibility. So writers basically don't quite get the respect that they need to in the evolution of a project. So I'm, I have no illusions about that. I have, I have no ego about that. You, you write a story. And to me, in my process, I cannot not write. And at any one time, I have three projects going. Usually it's one novel and two screenplays. And then I take little mental breaks, little excursions to write a poem here and there that, that will come to me. Um, but I don't believe in writer's block. I believe in writer's procrastination. And I believe that there are times when your mind just needs a break. Your imagination just needs to rest in that story. And one of the things that I have found about myself, too, is when I write, I become immersed vicariously in the story so completely. And um, all the years that I worked full-time as a critical care nurse, uh, I was at Bergen for 30 years uh, and got my degree at write as a writer at the same time and, can, and so mixed the two. But when I was writing at home and raising a family, my daughters would come up behind me and they'd wait until my body language said I was relaxed a little bit and then they would tap me on the shoulder and I would I would kind of jump and I'd say are you bleeding <laughs> so that got to be a joke in our family about you know don't disturb mom unless you're bleeding <laughs> I've thought about that before though where I mean there's that almost meditative quality to writing where you get so immersed and it's, it can be overwhelming to your senses just from what's coming out of your head and whether it's just the characters or the act of creating that world there almost is nothing like that it's like a high you get and it's hard to give up that high in some sense there was one time when uh, I was at UNO and we had the assignment of a short story and at that time I had my I wasn't on the computer, I was on the typewriter in the basement uh, at my desk down there. And I started in finishing this story. I just, and I was so excited and I, I was writing all night. And all of a sudden I heard the, the blurble of the coffee maker. And it was six o'clock in the morning. Now, I should have been absolutely exhausted, but I was on such a high with that story that I wrote it that high until in the afternoon. So yeah, it's exactly, it's exactly like that. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Sally J. Walker, author, screenwriter, and playwright, whose new book, Learn Screenwriting, is available wherever you get books. I'll have two more novels coming finally, coming out this year. And the reason that they haven't come out before is because I got so busy helping other people as I was teaching and at the Nebraska Writers Workshop, helping other people do their projects. And I was uh, editorial director for a small publishing company called The Fiction Works. And from 2000 until um, 2017, and um, 2018, I'm sorry. And um, so that was always, I was always helping other people develop their projects and and I would work on little bits on my own. Uh, the screenplays were a necessity. 
my soul demanded that I write those screenplays. The novels, they kind of got bits and pieces of me, but now I'm, now those are going to come out here in 2020, the two and then two next year. Where does that love of screenplays come from? Well, that came from when I was 16. N.B. Stone Jr. I was um, a Paramount writer. I got his name. I identified him off of uh, the credits for the TV show Bonanza. Okay. You were a big Bonanza fan? Oh, mm, my dad. I, my dad and I loved Westerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, name a Western, and uh, you know, I could tell you the cast, and, <laughs> but we won't go there. But absolutely avid Western fans. And um, so I wrote to N.B. Stone Jr. in care of Paramount Studios, and he wrote back. And I was absolutely flabbergasted. And then he encouraged me to write my own script. I had no idea what I was doing. But he sent me a copy of that Bonanza script to use as, as an example of the formatting. And I didn't know what I was doing. And he would correspond with me, and long before the days of the Internet. Um, and it was during the summer that he was up in Oregon on the set of Ride the High Country uh, with Randall Scott and Joel McRae and being directed by the um, iconic Sam Peckinpah. I had no idea the greatness of the talent I was working with. Um, and... But he he encouraged me, and I loved the immediacy of that medium, and it stuck with me. And I really, but I really didn't do anything with it until I got my degree, and then in '85, then I really started. I can do this. I so really. That was undergraduate degree you got in undergraduate degree, right? Bachelor of Fine Arts in Creative Writing. Creative Writing, okay. And so when you did that degree, that was primarily poetry and prose you were writing. Right. Okay. And so, had you written a full-length book when you were doing undergrad? No. No. Okay. So you're just sort of like, sort of deciding what you want to write, or just sort of exploring it all. Right. Um, and you fell in love with poetry at that point, or you'd already kind of loved well, it. Well, I kind of, like I said, my mind. It's when I I want a particular thing, mm-hmm. then my mind turns to that, or I capture a particular image. Then, then the poetry, this poetic concept will capture me until I, I finish it. Um, I have a 12-page saga poem that's for, it's rather complex. And I've never written uh, anything about medieval f- or fantasy. I'm a very much Western romance, historical, uh, contemporary romantic suspense kind of writer. So I'd never written medieval. But this came to me. And so I started working on it, and there's a, a spooky element into it that I, I wrote a, a pattern, and I, it's, I call it the, the basic, the foundation poem for the 12-page poem. And when I got done writing it, uh, I happened to go to a store, um, it's a, like the, the dollar store, and I was walking by the posters, and I stopped, and I was startled. I looked. And there was a poster that was exactly the reflection of all the images I had in my poem. 
and it was like there was a, a castle burning and there was there was a profile of this beautiful woman and there was a rose and there was a, a knight in armor on his charger and it was all in this poster and it's like holy cow and so of course I bought that poster and so then I put it on my wall in my office and I periodically looked at it and I just decided I was going to write about these two characters about the knight and the the fey young woman and write their their story in this this fantasy story so it, it turned out it's 12 pages long but most of my other poems are very short of well, course it seems so much more easily embarrassing maybe it's just by nature so vulnerable because you can't hide as easily through poetry um, but like, I mean, was it easy for you to start writing it? Every time I tried, like if I were to write two lines of a poem right now, immediately I'd say, well, that's stupid. I'm not going to keep going. Well, uh, Art Homer had us in a, a keep a notebook and, and we had to write a page, a short essay telling him what we wanted to get out of the class. And the very first line says, I, I just want you to teach me how to write a poem. And it was just the most wonderful enlightenment that I had those two semesters in his class. And poets don't make money. Right. Right up front. You you do it for love of language. And unless you're going to teach, if you're going to teach, then you're going to make money. But you do it for love of language. One of the things that I did, I was president of the Nebraska Writers Guild from 2007 to 2011. And during my tenure, we had uh, readings at the conferences and uh, member readings. And one year, I did something a little different in that I read a poem about uh, when a a newborn son of mine died. And um, it was in Albuquerque. And so I, I read this poem. And then I had used that same experience in a work of fiction. And so I read that excerpt from that work of fiction. I read the poem, and then I read the excerpt. Um, and I, the room was absolutely still when I got done reading. So uh, I knew that I had accomplished with both my poetry and my prose, reaching in and touching their hearts and their minds. And that's the whole objective. And look at, look at what screenwriting can do with that. Um, when it sucks you in and you're the audience and they're living the story. Um, When Lyle and I got married in 1975, and I had told him that I was a writer. I hadn't even started it. I was a nurse, an emergency department charge nurse. I was, and, uh, but, so I I told my engineer, new groom, that I was a writer, and he, he, oh, that's nice kind of thing. And on our wedding weekend, we went to see Jaws. Now, it was at the Indian Theater, which was kind of in a curved seating, and and we sat in the middle. And uh, having lived at Peony Park those four summers and being a swimmer, those very first scenes when that swimmer, that woman is on the top of the the surface and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, that shark's coming up to her, my heart rate started to go up. I clutched his arm throughout the, the movie. I left bruises on his arm <laughs> where my fingers were buried into his arm. And 
every time something more would happen, my heart would go, my heart rate went on up, and I was more tense and more tense. That head popped out of the bottom of the boat, and I, I about came out of my seat. And when they're having their their song where they're uh, and here's the shark coming back with that barrel and the beeping lights i honest god started crawling across people they didn't have time to move their legs i just crawled across them and and i didn't know that la was coming behind me he was just you know what's wrong with this crazy woman and i ran out the aisle and crashed open the doors here's all of these people waiting to see the next show and they're looking like, what's wrong with? And I, I went over to these Ottomans and I dropped on and I'm panting and and he's trying to console me and and I went home and drank two bottles of cold duck, <laughs> so that I could go to sleep. And that convinced him that I had told him I become very involved in stories and movies. I live the movies, and so he, he then he understood. <laughs> After a break, I'll continue my conversation with Sally J. Walker, author, screenwriter, and playwright, whose new book, Learn Screenwriting, is available wherever you get books. Wherever or however you're listening to this podcast right now, you should take a moment and check out Stitcher. For those who don't know, Stitcher is a free podcast app for iPhone and Android and home to over 260,000 podcasts. Stitcher also has smart recommendations, playlists, a car mode, even a sleep timer. While the Stitcher app is free to use, they also offer a premium subscription called Stitcher Premium that has exclusive bonus episodes from top shows, exclusive shows from top hosts, and ad-free listening all for only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year. Like pop culture, you can listen to exclusive bonus episodes from Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness or LeVar Burton Reads, plus get early access to episodes of The Dream, plus many more on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today and use promo code Riverside on the monthly plan to get your first month free. In 1907, three-year-old Dorothy Edie fell down a flight of stairs and was declared dead by the family doctor. An hour later, she was alive and completely uninjured. But she spoke with a strange foreign accent and she kept insisting that she wanted to go home to ancient Egypt. Ever since they were children, identical twins June and Jennifer Gibbons refused to speak to anyone except each other. They both believed that if one twin wanted to live a normal life and communicate with the world, the other would have to die. Then, at the age of 29, Jennifer died suddenly for no apparent reason. And a few days later, June said in clear English, I'm free at last. Jennifer has given up her life for me. I'm Ashley Flowers, host of the podcast Crime Junkie. There's nothing I love more than piecing together a good mystery. On my new show, Supernatural, I'm teaming up with podcasts to explore a different kind of cold case where the most fitting theory isn't the most rational one. Join me every Wednesday as I search for the truth about unexplained events from unsolved crimes to alien abductions. Supernatural with Ashley Flowers is a podcast original, and you can find it for free on Spotify. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. Today I'm talking with Sally J. Walker, author, screenwriter, and playwright, whose new book, Learn Screenwriting, is available wherever you get books. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me particularly if people do not understand. Uh, I've been through a 
a number of agents over the years uh, because to market in Hollywood, you have to have an agent. And um, the last one I had was actually a, a manager, and he really liked one of my scripts, and but he wanted me to do some revisions. Now, the difference between a manager and, a, and an agent is he had been an agent for like the first 20 years of his career, and then he uh, formed this management group. Managers can also be producers. He was the executive producer for Martin Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street. Wow, okay. So uh, very well known in the industry and and blah, blah, blah. Uh, But he really liked this script, but he wanted it rewritten from the point of view of the female character. So I did that, but he didn't like it. And so it was like, you know, case Ross raw. I I liked, but I do realize that I have more research that I have to do. And it is a script that could be filmed here in Nebraska. That's exciting because it takes place in uh, Norfolk, and out it ends out in North Platte, and uh, it's about uh, a carnival, traveling carnival in this summer. And um, I have to do some more FBI research. I didn't give the FBI enough bells and whistles, which they really do have. And so I have to give them more. So we'll see how how that pans out. Yeah, well, that's exciting. Well, okay, let's go back to the, the story. So you became committed to screenwriting after college? Yeah. Okay. What was the moment that that happened? Was I mean, did you study with Lou while you were in college, or when was that? No, actually, because I love my Westerns. Right. I joined Western Writers of America in 1989. It was the very first writing organization that I joined, and I've been an avid member ever since. And so I had written, um, I'd had a dream, and I took that dream and I fleshed it out into a feature-length screenplay. A friend of mine here in Omaha was vacationing in Hawaii and ran into a man by the name of Joe Wallenstein, and at that time Joe was uh, the... Uh, executive producer for Knott's Landing and then he went on for Sisters and and we stayed in touch and from uh, 1990 to 1997 he mentored me and how he mentored me was uh, he I would send him a script and he would give me some suggestions and it was whenever he was available I had written a stage play that uh, gotten permission from the uh, author of, uh, or who had the copyrights, and it was her grandmother's book, Oh Ye Jigs and Juleps, to adapt it for uh, children's theater here in Omaha, Emmy Gifford. And he had read that stage play, and he loved it, and he was working with the Clarks, who did Anne of Green Gables up in uh, Canada, and uh, he wanted to pitch Oh Ye Jigs and Juleps, to Disney. So he asked me to go back and ask for the cinematic rights, and um, the family didn't want to do it. They didn't want to sign the rights over to Disney because of the Disney reputation of taking everything and just totally re- reinventing it. And so they, they really did not want to do that. Um, and so Joe had worked with me for mm-hmm. a long, and then in 1997 I went to, I had 
I wrote uh, eight screenplays under him, his tutoring. In one year? No, no, oh, no, no. Okay. Oh, no, right. from okay. 1990 to 1997, oh, okay. I had written eight. And then uh, I went to um, a speech given by Lou Hunter in uh, Lincoln and connected with him and uh, began working with him. And he wanted me to come to a colony at uh, uh, down in Superior. So I went to that colony and... Uh, he and you really got to know him and Pam, his wife, very well. And uh, Lou has a thousand and one stories, and is such an iconic man. Um, and he had the textbook uh, screenwriting four thirty four, which was the title of his uh, master's class out at UCLA that he has continued to teach over the years. And he was working on a second. Uh, book that he's finally going to be coming out called Naked Screenwriting. And uh, it has interviews with all of these iconic writers and directors over the years that he has uh, interacted with. And um, so from him, under his tutelage and his encouragement, I went from eight to then now I've written 33. It's a lot of screenplays. And it's because I have to write them. It's not, it, I have no choice. I have to get them out of me and onto the paper. Um, file cabinet next to my computer desk has file folders for 72 more. <laughs> well, okay, so Lou Hunter's like this mythical person in Nebraska screenwriting. Oh, yes. Um, the amount of people who've either directly studied under him or just admire him, read the book, whatever it might be. He's, he's touched so many people here. The creative community, you can't escape his legacy, it sounds like. What is it about Lou Hunter that is that draws so many people in? Or what is it that people are taking away from working with him, reading about him, et cetera? He fires your imagination. He, he lets you believe in yourself. And uh, he has, in his 40 to 50 years, in uh, working in uh, Hollywood. Before he went to UCLA, he was program director for NBC for seven years. That's like the second in command of NBC. And uh, he just got tired of the corporate world, and that was when he went into uh, academia and has touched thousands of writers' lives. Alexander Payne is one of his right. his students, and um, you can go down the list of many of the best movies in Hollywood, and his students were the ones who created those stories. Um, and he goes back to uh, when he was at NBC. Bewitched was one one of the the series that he worked with and and on and on all of those during that time period and before that ABC and and CBS and uh, he wrote an Emmy winning uh, movie uh, and he just has this list of people that that name dropping that you interacted with that he understands they're just common ordinary people and but what they're doing is they're creating stories that capture the imagination of millions of people. Mm-hmm. And so he's very truthful. Now, he doesn't 
you know, you, you were talking about being hurt, your ego being hurt uh, by rejection. He doesn't do that. And every time, what, no matter what you've written, even if it's crap, he'll, t- he'll tell you, that's a good job. So he'll write on the cover of the screenplay that you sent him to, to look over. That was a good job. And it's like, oh. Like you know you, that's, that's the precursor. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know you have so much work to do. But when he says, excellent, or this is the best you've ever done, and things like that, then you know that you're progressing, that you're doing better and better and better. And um, when... Um, I had founded the Nebraska Writers Workshop and began it as uh, continuing education as well as encouraging one another in the real world to get published. Um, So I had worked uh, to teach what I had learned, and that started, oh, what, about two years after I started the workshop. So in 1987, I started. The more I learned about screenwriting, working with uh, Joe Wallenstein, and the more I read and the more I studied, and and so then Lou just, my awareness just exploded, and I became very detail-oriented, paying attention to the, the little twists and turns, the not just... Uh, the structure and not just character arc and not but everything that had to do with the screenplay in bits and pieces you can you can write a novel you can write a screenplay if you get it down to bits and pieces and that you build on that every day Um, I can write um, a screenplay in two weeks well, feature screenplay. And so, like, one of the takeaways from Lou would be that every little beat, what to do with those to make it effective or to make it reach people, that's, I mean, is that part of what you were studying or taking away from that experience? Yes. Okay. Because, I mean, I, I don't mean in the sense where it's like, it's easy to focus on, okay, the arc of this is really exciting. I love the arc, but then there are certain scenes where it's like, oh, you know, I don't really like this scene. I'll figure it out later or we'll put it in there. But Part of the idea, it seems like, of the most successful screenplays are every second almost there's something interesting happening and maybe overlapping interesting things happening, but not, you know, there's that balance of, like, it's not overwhelming, it still connects, it's clear what's going on, but not, you know, laying it out for you in a way that's condescending. Like, I don't know, there's so many different elements that you're trying to figure out, and I think a lot of writers get overwhelmed trying to figure out how do I make this all work, how do I focus on everything without it being too busy, et cetera. And so he did, what he did was help you streamline how to think about all those different pieces and, yes. and how to put them in place. Yes. And I had I had this huge library. I accumulated this huge library of, of textbooks. And the thing is that, that for me, I don't think that just Lou or just Sid Field or um, uh, just Robert McKee has all the answers, but they have bits and pieces that work for me. So then what I did was that's what my textbook, Learn Screenwriting, I took what is absolutely essential that you have to pay attention to. And some people get caught up and forget. Well, they get caught up in the, in the big spectacle or, or some crazy concept, that, and they forget that they have to do the fundamental research. 
They have to drop in the detail. They have to foreshadow. They have to be aware of the psychology of the character <laughs> and uh, relationships. So I had I worked with an industry person by the name of, of Palmer, who uh, she had been uh, at MGM, program director at MGM, for six years. And then she quit to establish a PR company. And she wrote a book called Good in the Room. And I promote that book in any seminar that I teach uh, because it's about pitching. And uh, that's one of the major skills that screenwriters have to have. They have to be able to pitch their story to get all of those collaborators involved and want to turn their paper story into a cinematic masterpiece on film. And uh, anyway, she said, you have to identify what you do best. And she said, all of these scripts, because she's read 18 of them, she said, you write dramatic romance. You don't write romantic comedy. Uh, that's, there's not a one of those scripts that could be called romantic comedy. She said, you write dramatic romance. The romance is a relationship story. No matter what genre I write in, whether it's contemporary or period, it has a romance in it. So I, am, I know from having been a member of Romance Writers of America for almost two decades, I know what it takes to orchestrate a successful relationship that people will identify with and understand. And they won't go, oh, no, that, that wouldn't have happened. He wouldn't have said that. Or, no, a woman wouldn't have cared about that. I know what matters, and so I know how to orchestrate it. And the drama part is um, never melodramatic. It's always meaningful. So that every novel, every screenplay that I write, proves some major point that I care about. And you're aware of that as you're writing? Mm -hmm. okay. Yes. I have it up on my computer, whatever projects I'm working on. I have it up in front of me, up on my computer desk, and yeah, I know exactly. So every day when I sit down to write on that project, I know I'm writing in that direction to make that point. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Sally J. Walker, author, screenwriter, and playwright whose new book, Learn Screenwriting, is available wherever you get books. So, I mean, like, when you're when you're writing, which seems to be always, uh, do you just have, like, an antenna up? So whenever you come across, like, oh, you're watching TV or you're reading something or come across anything and you think, oh, actually, that sparks something or that's an idea. Maybe there's some line of dialogue I could work with for there and just constantly harvesting your life. Absolutely. And, I, and I'll make little notes. Those 72 file folders that are in my... Uh, file cabinet they're they're full of they have character profiles they have bits and pieces of research they have um, yeah if some character has just really I remember looking being in a um, stadium and looking down and there was some guy that had really beautiful curly hair and it was just laid all over like almost like a cap but it was really a luxurious, and I thought, oh. So I went home, and I described that and dropped it into the appropriate file folder. Yeah, I come across. And then for Carnival Man, 
actually, it, uh, the concept for that was we went to uh, La Vista Days, and we were walking around, and they had hired a really inexpensive kind of rundown type carnival to to be set up with the rides and the booze and all of that. And I got to studying the people, mm-hmm. watching the people. And so then I went home and I started figuring out what how would how would that create a story? How could I create and there have been two or three movies about carnivals and about carnival people but I wanted mine to be something that that these people were portrayed as admirable, loving, caring people, not con artists and, and whatever. And so that does that function as sort of like that's the challenge is how do I achieve that? How do I yeah. make that work? Uh, are you always trying to sort of push yourself in that direction where it's something that – Based on what you say you started writing, a carnival does not seem like an obvious subject for you to gravitate your ideas toward. Um, is part of the appeal of something like that that it's like, all right, this is different. I don't even know how to pull this off, but I want to devote energy to it. Yeah. And then you start what ifing. What if this happened? What if this happened? And then I, I got to, okay, what, what would somebody coming from the outside in? And what about if... Uh, the man running the carnival, owning this carnival, and what if he had uh, was a very intelligent man and was very book oriented, and oh, it would be his daughter. Oh, he's he's really educated her, so she's working on her master's degree in philosophy. Why is she doing that? Because she wants to be a writer. She wants to write and create these kinds of wonderful people. But she's been trained her entire life in how to run a carnival. So then the idea that he begins to make a real profit from the carnival to the point where he buys this big, custom-built, luxurious RV. How could he do that? Well, then the states that they have been in the uh, Secret Service begins to find uh, counterfeit money. And so that, that uh, flag goes up, and so that's when, when both the FBI and the Secret Service are involved. And so, then so it's it, like you have to find the balance of the personal, uh, it seems like possibly relatable elements for yourself, but then also genre elements, and then it, you, know, you have to make it exciting in certain ways that sort of go beyond like writing just an autobiographical person wants to become a writer movie, right? Right. And doing the research. See, I know how to do research. I took uh, historical research while I was getting my degree, and it was probably one of the most valuable courses I, I ever took because I know where to go to and how to organize your research. And so I really researched in depth. And one of the things that I researched was the lingo and how it applies and how the, how the people living that life use it to the point where when my manager read the script, the first message he sent back, he says, well, this, 
obviously reflects that at some point in your life, you lived the carny life, and I about died laughing. it has got to feel good. Yeah, it did. It felt, I didn't tell him. Well, I had Aaron Parks on the show uh, probably about a year ago now, and so he teaches screenwriting at UNO, and I asked him what he thought the most perfect screenplay he'd ever come across was. He said the usual suspects. What do you think? I have a number, and in my second textbook, Learn Genre Film Secrets, I analyzed 22 films. And in there, there are, um, and there are two films that I, I reference in particular in the class and point out to them. The timing and the characterization of the, of the cast has to be just spot on perfect. And the two that I have found is The Ghost in the Darkness and um, the next to the last movie that John Wayne made. The last movie he made was The Shootist. The next to the last was The Cowboys. And sad to say that um, they want to do a remake, and I, it's like, oh, what, idiots. But <laughs> the script itself is just spot-on perfect timing. Everything in, in the first half of that feature film has a consequence in the second half. It's just, it's just like magic. And so, okay, so for you, part of what makes it perfect is the collection of moments themselves, but then that everything feels like it's in its place and it's clear to you by the time you get to the end what all that means and what you're supposed to take away from it. Right, and it's not predictable. Now, you can say... Well, yeah, this and this and this could happen. Or, and it's the argument that I get into with some uh, intellectual elitists about genre, anything, and they say, well, it's formulaic. No, it's not. You have an audience that has expectations. Here's a mystery. Here's the crime that was committed, the criminal that committed it, and the investigator who's trying to find out what happened and who did it okay but that's not the story in a romance you know in a romance you know they're going to be a couple at the end of the story that's not the story what is fascinating is how it happens how much of yourself do you find in your writing probably in uh a little uh but in desert time it was a lot (laughs) Uh, that's uh, the novel that was nominated for the Western Heritage Award in literature this year and, and didn't win, but it was, um, I enjoyed being nominated. That was nice. Um, but uh, so that's definitely, that was a definitely me kind of story. Desert Time, when did that book come out? Um, at, with a new publisher, so it was the second edition, it okay. was 2019. Prior to that, it was uh, in 2005 was when I wrote the very first um, edition. And you did you update it at all, or is it just? Oh yeah, okay. there were, yeah, there were changes that that I made in the in the story. So you've got Desert Time, Learn Screenwriting, and what are the other current releases? Uh, I have Letting Go of Sacred Things, and that uh, is ten episodes of a woman's life from 1910 to 1981 is roughly. Um, the story of my grandmother's life in Iowa. Uh, and I had written four of those stories as my senior thesis 
at UNO and Richard Ford, the um, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning author, and it was two years before he got the Pulitzer, he came to class and, and he had been sent one of those stories to evaluate and he was just so lush with his uh, compliments and uh, on my language and, and he encouraged me to uh, at dinner afterwards, he encouraged me to make it into a novel. And I said, I can see it as an episodic novel because they're like the four stories. He says, go for it. And so I did. And then when I uh, wrote it, then I sent him a copy through his agent and he wrote back. And that postcard's up on my bulletin board beside my desk. <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, you said you had how many textbooks that are coming out soon? I have four, um, and they're all in the Learn series. Um, so I've got uh, the one that's coming out next is called Learn Fiction's Tools. Um, and um, then I'm going to have one on plotting and one on characterization and uh, one on that in- includes a lot of the business of, of writing. So you're really passionate about taking what you've ga- gathered from decades of doing this and then helping other people get there, right? Absolutely. Our knowledge is not for us. It's for the world. When you, when you learn anything, we have a duty to pass it on to other people. I don't uh, hoard anything, including my time, which <laughs> my husband grabs my face and goes, learn to say it. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like I took away some valuable writing time from you today just because I couldn't get you in the building fast enough <laughs> wandering around. How many how many other textbooks would have come out otherwise? <laughs> well, Sally, is there any is there any place you want people to go to find all the updates on your work? Um, I have an author page on Facebook, um, uh, Sally J. Walker, and I think it says uh, teach writer and teacher. I think. Uh, and then I have a website, uh, sallyjwalker.com. And uh, my books are on Amazon, so they can uh, order them there. And uh, paperbacks are very inexpensive. They're fourteen ninety nine, And hardbacks are $25. And then so. uh, people can, uh, you can be people's mentor, too, through uh, your college classes, right? Yes, yes. And um, I, I only, I teach in the spring and in the fall. In the winter and the summer terms, those are my work my work periods when I work very hard at my writing. So. Well, I wish you the best of luck with all the upcoming works you've got going on, and thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarban Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork and website are managed by Ben Matukowicz. On next week's Riverside Chats, I have a conversation with local filmmakers and founders of the new production company Gnarly Pioneers, Jazz Shonick and Jesse Snyder. Stay tuned next week, and as always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. <laughs>